Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hi, Article 19 listeners. My name is Marty Malloy. Chief of Staff and Catalyst, and one of the hosts of our podcast. The episode you're about to hear is a little bit different than our previous episodes, in that it's going to be our first double episode with the same guests. Just like your favorite sitcom from back in the day when they'd flash that to be continued on the screen, well, we're going to do the same thing here. The reason for this is because our conversation with our three guests, Miso Kwok, who is a disabilities policy expert driven by a passion for social justice, Nate Stauffer, a middle school educator in English and advocate with a focus on gender and sexual minorities, and Jason Brillen, a senior software engineer with a focus on React and Java. They were all just too good to stop at one episode. Bringing together Harvard-educated, wickedly smart 20-somethings to discuss the intersection of education, accessibility, technology, and identity, it's frankly amazing we were able to keep it to two episodes. Before we begin, one quick fake fact about Miso, Nate, and Jason. When they're not focused on their day jobs, they're working on a Broadway musical salute to the classic game shows called Double Dare That Whammy. It's a working title. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Let's get this first part of the conversation started. So I'd like to formally bring in our guests, Nate, Jason, Miso. Welcome, friends. I am really curious. How are you all feeling today? Nate and Jason, why don't you kick us off? I think we're feeling good. We had a lovely 4th of July weekend, and we're just enjoying a nice summer where we can be outside after a long time stuck indoors. This is Miso. I'm doing well. Good, busy work day. I'm happy to be here. So we like to start off with kind of an easy question, roll into our podcast on Article 19. What is your favorite summertime activity? Nate, why don't you go first? Sure. I think nothing's better than a good old summer barbecue. Enjoy me some burgers and dogs and slaw and chips and all the fixings. Jason, how about you? I am a vegan, more or less. So my answer is going to be pretty different than Nate's. But over the course of kind of quarantine and the pandemic, I became really interested in plants. And I got over 30 plants in the past year. And I think this summer is a really exciting time for a lot of my plants because they have been growing very quickly. And I have been having a really good relationship with them and watching them grow into bigger plants. So for me, that's the highlight. I think you and Amanda could start a horticulture podcast after this one, if you'd like to. Miso, what about you? Do you have a favorite summertime activity? I really enjoy just kind of sitting by the pool with friends and family or being by the ocean and listening to the ocean and enjoying the summer like vibe and weather. That sounds perfect. Michael, Amanda, we can't not have your ideas here. Sure. Get me out on the water. Sailing. Just put me in a sailboat or a powerboat. If it's a boat, I'm on it. <laughs> My favorite summertime activity is going camping and hiking and just taking it easy, no plans, and just walking out in nature. Fire, 
s'mores. It doesn't get any better than that. Plants with Jason. There's a whole thing there. That's great. For me, I'm going to be much like Mr. Mangos on this one, except not on a boat. I love to be in the water and I love to just have the waves crashing on me and specifically ocean or bay water, not a pool. I am much more into the nature side of things. So love that. We brought you guys and gals here, Miso, Nate, and Jason, to really get into a broader conversation around social identities and inclusivity, the cross-section between cultural touch points, etc. But before that, I really want to just give the audience a chance to get to know all three of you a little bit better. So I'd like to start with you, Miso. Can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? So I identify as a 1.5 generation Korean American blind woman, and I can just quickly unpack that. So I was born in South Korea, and my family came to the United States when I was 13. So I was young enough to really be able to be integrated to American ways of life, but I was also old enough to really understand what it was like to be living in Korea, and I have like strong pride in my Korean identity and background. So for people like me who come to this country with their family in their you know, youth, the terminology is 1.5 generation immigrants. So that part of my identity, and I identify as a blind person because I've been blind since birth. For me, disability is something that I cannot separate from my life. I frankly cannot imagine my life without being a disabled person and being a blind person at this point. So that's just important part of who I am. I am a cis woman, so hence uh, I say I'm a woman. So um, those, that's uh, just briefly about who I am. And I work in the field of disability policy. Specifically, I am part of a national project that aims to promote and advance person-centered practices and supports for people with various disabilities and older adults who use long-term services and supports. So that's kind of my main line of work. My background before doing this work is in education policy. I always played music as I was growing up. So I've taught music before as well. So yeah, that's a kind of brief snapshot of who I am. I'll key it up to you, Nate. Follow that. (laughs) Sure thing. I was going to say Miso is a true Renaissance woman. That is a hard act to follow. My pathway to classroom teaching started in my undergraduate years. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, student taught in West Philadelphia and quickly became aware of my own privileges as an able-bodied white cisgender American male Ivy League educated teacher teaching in schools that were, you know, super underfunded and where truly none of my students reflected my own identity groups. So that led me to want to kind of burst out of my bubble after college. So I was fortunate to win a Fulbright grant to go to Malaysia and teach for a year. And while that continued to enlighten me to the many ways in which my identities privileged me. It also, curiously enough, taught me a little bit, again, about what it feels like to face oppression as well, because I also identify as a gay man. And Malaysia is a country where homosexuality is illegal and not accepted. So I had to go back into the closet, what Kenji Yoshino calls covering. I highly recommend his book if you haven't read it. And that process of sort of going back into the headspace of not being able to be open about one of my identities helped me realize how important it really is to have inclusion in all settings. So coming back, I dedicated myself to a career working in making schools more inclusive along the lines of particularly social identities. I went to the Harvard Grad School of Education with MISO, actually, where we did some DEI work together. And I try to continue that work at my current school as well. 
Jason, bringing up the sort of technology side of things, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and if you could orient listeners to who you are. For sure. So I'm Jason. I am a software engineer working in the Boston area, which is where I met Nate. Nate and I are dating. And yeah, I've been an engineer for a travel company for the past five or six years, uh, ever since I graduated. I really like traveling in my free time. So that was something that I wanted to work on. I think when I started working as an engineer, it was more of a full stack role, I would say. Right now, I work more oriented towards the front end, so things that the user sees on the page, some of that being accessibility. I obviously studied software engineering in college. The other thing that I studied was literature, so something that I'm really passionate about is keeping up with my reading. I like to read a lot of books, and I run book clubs at work. Specifically, I try to read books that are exclusively by marginalized communities just to get better perspectives on the world from people that you don't often hear from. So yeah, when at work, I think I'm uh, pretty active in forming a lot of the ERGs that are at work, the employee resource groups, and kind of planning events for that. So trying to keep that alive at work. That is fantastic. We're going to dig in a little bit more there later in the conversation, I know. But I want to kind of get things started with technology inclusion. Obviously here at Article 19 and at Tamman, we are very interested in inclusion in all of its forms, but certainly that starts a little bit with technology. So I'll shoot this question to you, Miso. As a blind woman, are there any tips, tricks, tools, things that you do when you first go to a website to ensure that the information there is going to be accessible by you and it won't be a complete waste of time? What's your process as you're approaching a website for the first time? So for those who don't know how a blind person accesses you know, the internet and just a computer in general, I use a software that reads out the screen. So um, those are generally called screen readers. There are a couple different brands that within the screen reader, and I do not use a mouse. All of the kind of computer usage that I deal with is all done on keyboards. So having said that, when I go on a website, there are a couple like red flags, I will say, to answer your question, Marty. If there are just so many graphics or links or buttons without any labels, that's kind of a no-no. So for example, it will just literally say like button, button, graphic, graphic, or it will just read like a string of numbers and letters that really don't make any sense. If a site is full of those kinds of things, I generally don't feel inclined to use that site. I think it's becoming less and less, but still I sometimes encounter websites where it seems pretty impossible to navigate using a keyboard only. It's pretty apparent that like, you know, the website is up and, you know, people are using it because I I know that people are, you know, people have told me that they use it, but there is really nothing that I can click the enter in order to activate something. That is not really good sign for me to be spending time in that website. Yeah, so those are kind of like, I would say, deal breakers. Does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was fantastic. So Jason, as the developer on the panel here, I know that you're not primarily focused on accessibility in your day job, but what are some of the things that you look for as you're building inclusion into the sites that you work on? I think that Miso touched on some of it and I'll, I'll end up repeating it, but some of the things just on the initial impression of a page would be things like the font size. Is that something that is readable for everybody depending on their vision skills? Things like 
color contrast of the background color against the font color, same kind of thing. Is that distinguishable enough for everybody to see? There's kinds of colors you're using, right? If you're using like maybe red, green with a reason to use it, that could affect people that are colorblind. And then if you want to go like a little bit more under the hood, then you're thinking about how is the code structured on the page in terms of, you know, like the HTML is it written in a way that makes sense? You know, are there heading tags where there should be heading tags? Do you have list items like bullet points that are properly tagged as such? And then things like Miso mentioned. So having labels on things that need to have labels so that people know what they are. Can you access and tab through the site with a keyboard? If you turn on a screen reader like Chromebox or something, which is a Chrome extension, and it goes through the page, will it tell you what all the things are in a way that is good enough to use the site? If you use something like Wave, which is kind of like another Chrome extension that'll scrape the page and let you know what's wrong with it, you know, and those could be the things that I mentioned, like color contrast, or you have really bad HTML markup, stuff like that. So when I'm working on things, those are generally the things that I look for and the things that I think about. But a lot of them are already taken care of for you in some of the newer frameworks that are built, which is nice. So if you're using something like React or Angular, or if you're using a linter that looks at the code that you're writing, it'll tell you, hey, you know, you have an image here and it doesn't have a label for the image. So somebody that can't see it won't know what it is. You need to fix this. But that's kind of what I do on my day to day. I mean, there's a lot we do at Tamman. You know, we build for the accessible web and we build accessible applications and kiosks and all kinds of accessible experiences. And so you're speaking my language already, Jason. But I've said this in past podcasts. I'm just going to like double down on this for a second that headings and heading structure to me are kind of the number one thing. Now, Miso may disagree with me (laughs) from an importance perspective, and that's totally fine. I could take my lumps if I got it wrong. But I would say that having both employed and worked with designers, developers, QA testers without like good semantic structure for any experience starting at the design phase or the content development phase, the kind of the rest of it becomes almost impossible to succeed at later. You know, not that it's the linchpin that makes everything else work, but that it's the thing that will scuttle the success of accessibility because it kind of indicates a lack of planning and thinking that is really necessary to succeed at this business. So I just want to kind of throw that out there and see if anybody has a reaction to that. But (laughs) This is Miso speaking. I agree with you. I think it's really important that, you know, from the beginning that accessibility is thought about. Um, I think a lot of problems that we're running into just speaking for like many disabled folks is that it's always like reactive uh, meaning like oh wait yeah we should really thought about that but people kind of just wait until somebody tells them hey I can't use this for like xyz reasons but if we build things whether that is a website or you know any like product or even something like making uh, transportation roads all sorts of things i think it's really important to think about accessibility and inclusion from the very beginning and that will honestly save a lot of time and probably money as well amanda let me bring you in for a minute thanks marty and miso those are great questions and great answers i am curious like from an educator standpoint like is there something that you're looking for that's not necessarily like on the back end like within the code but is there something like content wise that you're looking for as an educator so this would be for nate or miso to answer miso i'm gonna jump in here real quick so I look for a number of things. I think I'm excited that we're having this conversation on the heels of a remote learning year, right? Because I've thought about 
educational technology more this past year than I have in the entirety of my career prior to that. Granted, I'm still a very young educator, but things that kind of came up early in the year. First of all, I think there's an assumption that a lot of adults make that, oh, kids are growing up with technology, so they inherently know how to use it. And that's not necessarily true. I think we all know that that's not true because we've all had a moment of picking up a new piece of technology and having to teach it to ourselves. So as a teacher, the first thing I have to think is, well, how easy is it going to be for me to scaffold this platform for my kids? Right, because I don't want to eat up a whole lot of class time to go through all the different parts of a website with the students. It needs to be pretty intuitive for them so I can introduce the page or the app to them and then sort of set them free to work independently. Second thing is, are all students able to navigate the platform relatively independently? Right, you know, we have student support teachers who work with students with disabilities to make sure they can access things, but By and large, we want to make sure that if we're buying a new platform to use at our school, it's something that everyone is going to be able to make use of, not just a select few students. And then the third thing, well, it's two pieces, but they kind of go hand in hand. The first one would be just maximal customization for me as an educator to make sure I can put in as much of whatever the content is that I'm working on with my students into the platform as possible. And secondly, tied to that is responsive feedback. So there's one of me and 30 kids in front of me. I only get 30 seconds with each kid as I pop around the room to help them with certain problems. I need to know that the platform that I'm using has systems built in to ensure that my students are going to still be receiving feedback from the platform when I'm not right in front of them doing it with them. So those are things I tend to look for in tech inclusion, but I'd love to hear if Miso has any other ideas as well. Yeah, I think Nate has some really excellent points, especially from the teacher's perspective, having taught through this uh, pandemic on the ear. So what I'll touch on is, I think, um, from like more business perspective and uh, somebody who has, you know, navigated the educational system as a student with a disability, uh, my entire educational experience, right? One, if to speak briefly, if you're, you know, listening to this and if you work in an educational setting, whether that is a K-12, higher education or something else, and if you're in a position to, you know, make decisions about purchasing certain piece of technology or software, please just make sure before you purchase that piece of technology that it meets the accessibility standards. It is user-friendly. I think a lot of institutions make a mistake of purchasing whatever they think is good, whatever that good means for them. And then realizing that, again, it goes back to the importance of being um, proactive, right? And yeah, so a lot of institutions make a mistake of purchasing something for everyone to access and then realize in real life that not everyone can access the technology. And I think that creates a lot of problem that could have been prevented. So great answers, by the way, so far. I'm really, you've got me sort of turning over some things in my head. I think I have a response to something you said just to affirm it, you know, that your students need to also be able to figure out this technology. It's not just obvious to them because they grew up with it in air quotes, which you can't see me putting on the podcast. But this idea that We talk about digital accessibility as being sort of a part of user experience design, or some people think of it as an add-on. But honestly, if you start with good user experience design, it is inclusive of digital accessibility as well. And when I think about the very young, it's kind of not too different from being the very old or, you know, someone who might be classified with a cognitive disability. Not that young children are disabled. They just haven't learned stuff yet. (laughs) 
you know, they haven't had enough life experience yet. Not different from forgetting life experience. And I think just the idea of creating good, usable solutions that anybody can use and figure out is really sort of the goal. And sort of, I kind of would love to see a lot of people in, in my business or in the technology business stop putting accessibility as like a checkbox thing and rather saying good UX is just more important than anything else. And you can't be exclusive of people that don't look and sound just like you as like a middle-aged, like wealthy web developer. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, Nate, I know you want to say something to that. Yeah, I just wanted to snowball off that and make sure that we also bring in, you know, class, like socioeconomic yeah. status as part of this conversation, right? Because particularly for forms of technology that might be used by folks who are seeking jobs for the first time, who are unemployed, or, you know, who may have a lot of children that they're taking care of at home and don't have a lot of time to spend on the internet, right? Or don't have a super up-to-date iPhone to access a website from, I think we need to be thinking about how to make sure that the content is reaching sort of the margins, right? Build for the margins and then kind of work your way in from there and thinking about that not only from the lens of ability, but also from the lens of class and how technology and class interplay with each other. Yeah. I have a couple of follow-up questions, if I may, related to this, because I think, you know, our goal tonight is to talk about identity and individuality and pronouns at some point. But I think as we've been on digital accessibility, there's a few things that with the three of you as an interesting guest group, I'd love to get your take on a couple things. One is, you know, I've heard the argument that building for accessibility, there's a lot of money in that, or there could be money. There's a lot of spending going on. And Misa, I've heard you talk about, you know, you would prefer to use websites or you're more likely to stick with an experience that is accessible to you rather than muddling through an experience from a, a manufacturer or a distributor or a company that you can't really get to their product easily. But I'm kind of curious, are any of the three of you more likely to spend your money with companies that acknowledge your identity? It could be by building an accessible website. It could be by marketing their support for pride movements. It could be around, you know, you know, creating gender identity normalization through their language and their site. Are you more likely to spend your money there? Or are you likely to buy the things you were going to buy anyway? You're just happier when they acknowledge your identity. I would defer to Miso on this question as a white man, personally, but I will also throw in real quick that you know, I haven't had a Chick-fil-A milkshake in three years for whatever that's worth. <laughs> Absolutely. So two quick example. One negative example is that there was a lawsuit in which a blind man sued Domino's Pizza because their online ordering wasn't accessible and it went to like the Supreme Court because Domino was like ADA, which is American's with Disabilities Act does not apply to digital spaces. And thankfully, a uh, Supreme Court denied hearing that case. So that uh, the ruling that said that Domino needs to fix the website and compensate the plaintiff, that rule stood. But if somebody offers me a Domino pizza, I'm not going to like be rude and deny that. But I am never ordering from Domino's with my own money at own will ever again until their website gets fixed and their company apologizes or something. A more positive example is I was really, really excited when Senator Elizabeth Warren was running for president and she came out with buttons that had Braille on it. And I don't buy anything 
you know, political or anything like that. Like, I don't have buying habits like that, but I was like, well, this is really special. Like no other, you know, public figure has, you know, acknowledged my existence to like this degree. So I immediately ordered her buttons. And honestly, I think I'll like cherish that experience for a long time. That's a great example. Misa, oh, absolutely. Nate and Jason, before you jump in, I would like to ask Miso, do you read Braille? Yeah, absolutely. And if you give me like a 30 minutes an hour, I'll tell you why Braille is important. Um, but for the sake of time, we'll not do that. But yes, I do read Braille and I literally would not be here having done what I've done so far without Braille. It's interesting because I've read some statistics about this, for me at least, the surprisingly small number of people that identify as blind that also read Braille. And I just think that that's an interesting thing because I've encountered a lot of folks as I'm teaching them about digital accessibility and think, well, if we just put Braille on that thing, whatever it is, maybe it's signage or a credit card or whatever, that's somehow going to solve the like the blind you know, concern, right? Like how do we serve those you know, people that, are, that identify as blind well? And I'm like, I, I don't think that's actually going to solve your problem because most blind people don't read Braille. So you got to come up with other solutions, right? So I just was curious about that, but then I want to get back to Nate. Yeah, so for myself, I guess, as a member of the queer community, I think that I think that it depends depending on how the company is kind of, or, or brand or whatever is engaging with the queer community. So I don't usually get stuff from Chipotle, not because I have anything against Chipotle, but just because I don't usually eat Chipotle. But a transgender drag queen that I like was partnering with Chipotle where they made like a special bowl that you could buy where the money would be going to an organization that supports uh, the transgender community. And so I bought a bowl because of that. And I think that was because it looked like, you know, the money was going somewhere useful and it was not just like a, a performative action. And, you know, Pride Month recently ended and I was walking home the other day and I passed a store that had like a bunch of rainbows outside and had like a bunch of rainbow merchandise inside and I went inside to look at it just out of curiosity and it was like you could get this shoe that has rainbow shoelaces for $110 and I don't really know why anyone would do that or at least I personally wouldn't do that I don't think that that money is really going anywhere useful and it's kind of just in my opinion using a given community for the purposes of getting money out of them so more of like a performative marketing and less of actually doing anything positive. Rainbow washing is what Amanda wrote. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. That's excellent. Absolutely. Before I leave education and technology and inclusion in in the space that we were in, I want to bring Nate back in for a minute. Nate, I've heard you speak about ESSA, E-S-S-A, the Every Student Succeeds Act before. And I'd really like for you to talk for a second about how equal opportunity inclusion look. How does that look in your classroom? And what does that mean to you from an educational standpoint? Thanks for asking that. So I think... The public writ large has some understanding of the fact that schools have to cater our content to make sure it is accessible by all of our students, right? We are legally held in the public school system to make sure that all students can access all content at all times in some way. So what that often looks like is individualized education plans or 504 plans as well with our students where we work with the student and their family and our student support teacher team to co-create a set of accommodations that we think are going to best support each individual student. And we do that on an annual basis. So that's always evolving. And each year, the next educator who will teach that student or educators who will teach that student will read that plan, agree to it, and will be evaluated throughout the 
the year on how well we are maintaining those accommodations that we've set in place for those students. I think what's not thought about as much and where I find there to be a lot more juice in this conversation is outside the content delivery piece of instruction, because that's such a small part of what school really is, more into the relationship building piece of it. So there are certain ways that most public schools in this country operate, particularly along the lines of discipline that have been upheld for centuries now, and that often take a sort of punitive approach that have led to school cultures being increasingly toxic for certain communities. And we see it in the rates of suspension across our country. If you've ever read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or any number of really great series of essays or books that talk about the school to prison pipeline, you have some understanding of how particularly black and brown students face higher rates of discipline in our country than their white peers. And a lot of that has to do actually with inclusion, right? About just the cultural sensitivity and responsiveness of classrooms. The teaching workforce by and large demographically does not reflect the students that we teach. And the programs in which most teachers are trained are grounded in norms and values that originated in white supremacy culture. So the series of values that have historically defined organizational leadership across the United States because our country was founded by white European men. So I have worked with my school to start to shift that dialogue in the direction of restorative justice, which means working directly with students, being constantly in conversation with them about what they want their education experience to look like and ways that I can better support them. So, you know, of course, I, as the adult in the room, have to set certain standards for all the kids. And I ultimately am legally held to a certain set of expectations, both content-wise and also in terms of just my presence in the classroom. But I also want to make sure that I'm, you know, communicating with the kids because I try to think of the kids in my classroom almost as my clients, right? I mean, education doesn't work in the way most other capitalist industries do in the sense of client negotiations. But at the end of the day, the kids are the consumers of what I'm offering. I offer a service every day and the kids receive that service. And so the kids ultimately need to have some level of autonomy in choosing what they're learning, what they're reading, and how I'm addressing them. If there's a way that I am conducting myself in the classroom that doesn't work for certain kids, it is my responsibility as the educator to find out what that is and how I can do it better. So that's how I try to approach ESSA in my own personal pedagogy. But I think that's something that still needs to be scaled out to the education conversation at large. So MISO, continuing in this education path for a minute, one of the things that I heard Nate talk about, and I've actually heard throughout this conversation we've been having so far, is this idea of individuality and sort of an ability to customize. Nate was mentioning in one of the platform conversations, things like that, is from a scalability standpoint and building relationships on an individual basis or building something individually for someone, that is resource heavy. That is really time consuming. Is that something as we move as a society into a space of more individuality? Is that something that we can really do on a broader scale, thinking about every single student as an individual and not in the sort of industrial complex that we have of you're going to be a factory worker so we want you to be this cock in this wheel and learn these skills and just move along we're really kind of in this interesting space me so as an education policy person as an educational equity advocate what are your thoughts with is this even feasible to go as a relationship and individual based as nate has just articulately pointed out i first want to acknowledge this is a hard question so 
Yeah, I just want to first acknowledge that this is a hard question. And I also want to point out that, you know, we cannot ignore the financial costs as well as the time involved in making everything really accessible and inclusive. That said, I think what's really important is this kind of attitude and mindset that every student who walks into a classroom can learn. I think that's really important. I honestly think what's often hinders me based on my personal experience like what hindered me more in school is teachers saying that well i don't know if like you as a blind person can really get a lot of lot out of my biology class because like what are you going to do when we are learning about you know microscope for example right but the point is not that i have to stare into the microscope and be able to see what's under it but that i have to understand like what microscope does you know what it looks like, which can be, you know, represented using, you know, something, whatever that you have on hand. So for example, I I was really lucky to have this biology teacher in high school who would use Play-Doh to, you know, make something really quickly and then show it to me so that I can understand like what she was drawing on the board. So I don't think the solutions have to be always this high tech, high cost things, but more of this attitude and Uh, your willingness to be creative and think outside of the box. Awesome. Mike, I want to bring you into the conversation for a second, because as Miso was talking, it reminded me of something that I've heard you talk a lot about. And I think you were starting to go there with sort of the cost question you had asked previously. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The first question I asked earlier was around, would you spend your money there? helping make the revenue argument or the profit argument for businesses of why they should pursue accessibility or inclusion. You know, I think it's a really tough one because this kind of affects schools. It affects sort of all spending, right? Where does money get diverted? One of the things that I think was an interesting outcome from this like user experience movement, you know, where Apple really helped usher in a different concept for design. Once Apple's iPhone platform took off, a lot of companies wanted to emulate them and said, well, you know, we want to build products that engage with customers or that, that engage with users. But then everybody quickly was like, well, I don't need to get everybody on board. I just need to get a small number of like loyal users or loyal constituents or loyal students on board with what I want to do. And yet the whole concept was really exclusionary at its premise, right? That like, you know, we want to make a piece of software that reaches this 5% of the population and sort of forget everybody else. And I think so much momentum got built up in that vein. Like, I'm not building for everybody. I'm building for the 5% of people that want to buy my thing. That we're seeing sort of a complete paradigm reversal here around we want to design and build things for everybody, but that's not always practical or possible given time and money. And so where should companies spend their money? And I think a lot of businesses, at least as I've found, talking to business owners or leaders of divisions of big companies, it's not always an easy choice, you know, between serving everyone, but doing a lot less, you know, for all people or doing a lot for a small number of people. It's just not all going to happen. And as I don't know how that translates exactly into education. You know, a couple of amazing guests here who can probably talk more about how those decisions get made or what sort of impacts you've seen from those decisions. But I know that in business, it's a hard argument to win. And, and I feel like where I try to guide people when they're willing to listen to me blather on about it is going for accessibility or going for inclusion and for universal design isn't really about the money it's going to bring. It's a moral argument. Like we have to want to do it because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to be more profitable, right? And 
until we as a society or at least a critical mass of people with influence decide that it's worth doing, like it's probably not going to take off. It, it needs people that care and kind of like nothing more. Right? <laughs> you know, then that's where resources will get diverted, sort of profits be damned. It's maybe not the most capitalistic thing to say, but it is exactly what we need for government. It's exactly what we need for education. And it's exactly what we need for commerce. I'll kind of stop there and see if anybody <laughs> wants to <laughs> glom on or refute me. I don't have a anything to refute you. I'm just seeing this really interesting crossover between the educational experience that Nate and Misa have had and like the tech world experience that Jason, you, Marty, and I all have, where the crossover being the people who are creating the product are not always the end user. And like at Tamman, we always try to create empathy by sharing user personas and stories when we're teaching and educating. So I'm wondering, as educators on your end, are there any techniques or tools that you use when you're educating stakeholders or trying to get people, air quotes, on board? This is me. So I think, honestly, as like not super clear cut, like clear solution as it may sound, I think the most kind of practical way to convince others on, you know, accessibility and inclusion has been just keep showing up and doing what I can. Like, I think it's more of a persistence that has been really helpful. And obviously, it doesn't always work. And in, in those cases, I have to kind of fold my case and move on to better fights. But I think, you know, as somebody who's been doing like advocacy work for a long time, uh, mostly because of necessity, like persistence and like my willingness to keep going and then bringing in to people to my world has been like honestly pretty effective. Yeah, I would totally second Miso and I would just add in that communication is key and that it should be the first step. I think a lot of times at least in other industries, the thought is you work on something and then once you've worked on it for a sufficient period of time, you turn to someone else and you share what you've been working on. And in education, it's completely the other way around where I would much rather my student finds me incredibly annoying because I'm constantly over their shoulder being like, hey, is this working? Then I would just assume it's working for them until I get the test scores back, right? So front-loading that work of being in communication and catching myself whenever I notice I'm making an assumption that something I'm doing is working. If I see a kid's head down or see them start to drift off, finding a new way to hook them back in. So it's just constant awareness. It definitely is resource intensive and energy intensive as, you know, working in a social field. But for me, that's why I chose this profession. So it's, it's all worth it. Or the profession chose you, Nate, because you have both of those things in abundance, for sure. So that's great. Yeah, Mike. Jason, I want to make sure we bring you back into the conversation. I'm really curious, not to belie any current or past employers, but in your experience as a developer, have you found that companies are committed to some of these things, either inclusion and or digital accessibility for its like moral reasons? or for compliance reasons, or for profit reasons? Like, have, do you have any kind of like perspective on that or experience there? Yeah, I'll take those separately, I guess. So in terms of the digital accessibility piece, I think that a lot of companies, whether they're small startups or, or large companies, you know, like the, the big ones, I think that they, maybe less so now, but definitely a couple of years ago, were particularly reactive, like Miso has mentioned, in terms of doing accessibility work. And some of them still might be reactive today. And even if they're not reactive where somebody brings 
them an issue and says, you know, this doesn't work. Accessibility might still be something that's brought in later on after something's already been developed. And then after you develop it, you might add accessibility into it, which is never really great in my opinion, because typically in those cases, you might work on something and maybe ship it out or something and move on to something else. And then you might go back and you realize, oh, you know, this doesn't have all the accessibility it needs, but now I'm probably going to be spending twice as long or three times as long on it because it's been a while since I worked on this or I have to kind of shoehorn it into something that doesn't already have it. But if I had started at the beginning with accessibility while I was actually coding this, then it wouldn't take me, you know, even half as long because I wouldn't have to try to figure out how to work it in. It would have already just been there from the beginning. Have you seen commitment from employers in the past building in inclusive design and or digital accessibility for moral reasons, compliance reasons, or profit reasons? Yeah, I've only worked at one company. And I I guess in terms of inclusivity, I think that that's something that we have started doing in the past couple of years for more moral reasons, I would say. You know, we, we started creating like employee resource groups and other sort of educational events and and opportunities for people at the company to learn about different identities and different backgrounds. And that was not something that we did because it was required of us. And it's not something that we did because it, you know, makes it look good because it's not something we really outwardly publicized to the world. So I think it was just really something that we wanted to do internally. Some of the more recent ones were definitely spurred by the just recent direction that society is heading in, in general. In my opinion, I think in general, you know, a lot of companies are doing things for more moral reasons, just because that's kind of where the world is heading. I am curious, Jason, though, and Nate, then I want to get you in. Were those employee groups, was that from the ground up or was that from the top down? I actually started mine. So that was, at least in my case, the ground up. Me and a couple of my friends at the company, this was probably in 2017, we went to an event together that was called like Out in Tech. It's a third party, you know, company that hosts events in different areas around the country for people who are out in the field of tech. And afterwards we got back and I made a group chat on Slack or it might've been, you know, pre-Slack. It might've been something earlier than that. But I made a group chat with them and I was like, hey, you know, I had a great time yesterday. It was cool seeing you all. And then we turned that from a private group chat into a public group chat and we came up with a name for it. And then that kind of became a more formalized actual like employee resource group that got funding. Um, And that was probably one of the earlier ones that we had, at least at my company. But I think definitely from the ground up. That's great. I think that's going to be the thing that makes it a lot more long lasting, outlast you, even though you started it and, and more. Nate, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in real quick to put in a second plug for the book covering by Kenji Yoshino. I dropped it in the middle of a sentence earlier on, but the book gets at the heart of Mike's question. Dr. Yoshino, his work is in researching the financial impact of exclusionary practices in Fortune 500 companies. And so he has worked on figuring out how to quantify the net losses that companies face by not creating corporate cultures in which people feel that they can bring their full selves into their work. Because there is a real and very large impact if you actually dig in and can create a strong data set from all that. So I think, Mike, this would be good beach reading for you. It's not light, but it is helpful and certainly informative. Thanks. I don't need light. I just want good.
If you like what you heard today and want to explore more about digital accessibility, inclusivity, or to schedule a time to talk with us, you can find the whole Tamman team at TammanInc.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C.com. Or follow us on social media at Tamaninc on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We'll talk to you again next time.